0: Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you can find a white paperback Bible that should be underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Proverbs 24 is on page 314, so feel free to grab that and follow along with us. Uh, Last year, I read... Um, uh, a book that's been getting a, a lot of attention lately. It's a book called Hillbilly L.G. by a guy named J.D. Vance. Uh, anybody read that book? Yeah, a few, few hands here and there. Um, yeah, pretty popular book. A lot of people talking about it. I understand they're going to turn it into a movie uh, in the next couple of years. And this book is about um, <clears throat> this man, J.D. Vance, his upbringing in Appalachia. He grew up in Um, uh, an area uh, where there was a lot of poverty, a lot of dysfunction, uh, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of violence, a lot of trauma. And this author, by the grace of God, kind of made it out of there and eventually went to Yale. And of course now he's writing books. And the book is just a reflection on his experiences. And one of the purposes for which this book was written is so that J.D. Vance could ask this question. It's a very important question. It's a question that's probably occurred to you before and that people talk about and debate about all the time. And the question is this. How much of of the way we develop as people depend upon our own personal decisions and how much depends on the environment, the culture, the families that we inherit. How much of who we are as people depend on our own responsible choices and how much depends on things that are outside of our choices like the home, the city, and the places that we've been brought up. Well that's what this book explores and uh, there's a, a point near the end of the book where Vance goes back to his high school and he's talking to some teachers in the high school And the teachers are telling him some stories about students in the high school. And one of the teachers talks about one of the mothers who, uh, one of the students, who was a mother, and actually misplaced her child. It was the way the teacher described it. It was like she lost her car keys. She just didn't know where her baby was. And the child showed up like two years later in, uh, excuse me, two weeks later in New York City um, with the child's father. And so the comment from J.D. Vance was, you know, you can just imagine you know, the kind of life that that poor young child is probably going to have to endure. And so the conclusion of that little story is this, is that the real problem for the kids in that particular high school, and the real problem that J.D. Vance faced in his life, is what happens at home. That's the real problem. It's not to deny that personal decisions and you know, cultural situations don't play a part. But one of the main indicators of who we're going to be as people is what happens in the home. It's something that all of us have in common today, right? We, we all have a home. We all come from a home. We're all part of a family of one sort or another. And your basic personality, your habits, your work ethic, even your spiritual beliefs... And in some sense, your chance to succeed in life has everything to do with your home and your upbringing and your family. And so God knows this, of course, and that's why the Bible proves itself to be constantly relevant and applicable and helpful to us, because after all these centuries, we have the same issues, and we see that in the Scriptures, there's a lot of wisdom for families There's a lot of direction in the Bible for life in the family. So what we've been doing here over the last few weeks at New Life is going through a sermon series on the Proverbs. We've been looking at the wisdom that God gives us through Solomon in this uh, ancient Old Testament book. And um, if you want to see the schedule where we're headed for topics in the future, you can find that in the Lifeline. Um, but today, there is hope, I want to tell you. there is hope for families. Hope for those of you who might have come up in dysfunctional families, those of you who might look at your current family situation and think, there is no hope for us, um, but but there is through the scriptures. Change is possible. Cycles of dysfunction can be broken. And I think the answer and the solution to that is in the scriptures. So we're gonna read just Proverbs 24, three and four, just two little verses. Um, And then, of course, we'll look throughout the Proverbs for what it has to say about family. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Proverbs 24, just verses three and four. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Our Father, we call on your Holy Spirit to be given to us today as your word goes forth. Give hope for those today, Lord, who are discouraged by their family situations. Bless us, Speak to us. Give us grace to respond in faith and hope. And may our family lives, Father, be pleasing to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> so, uh, again, the Proverbs are, uh, you know, kind of assembled in a little bit of an unusual way, different than other books in the Bible. There's just all sorts of Proverbs spread throughout the book, addressing different subjects. So we're going to be jumping around. I'm going to have a lot of the Proverbs... Uh, On the screen for you, but if you want to flip around in your Bible uh, to follow along, that's that's certainly fine. But one thing before we get started, I just want to be very clear uh, about the place of the family in the Bible. Um, The family is not just some kind of an addendum in God's economy, the the family is absolutely central. Uh, God started the family when He created Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis, brought these two together, commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. That is to start families and to spread throughout the earth to display the glory of God. So the family is a good thing. It's God's idea. And I would say the family is the fundamental building block of human civilization. The family, you can't hardly overestimate how important the family is in God's way Of looking at things and so here we have in proverbs 24 this this short little passage that tells us that a house is built in a particular way now when it says a house here it doesn't mean the actual physical structure of a house this isn't direction for how to build a house by house this means the household That is, the the family that lives in this particular place. And what the proverb tells us is that the way that a household is filled with precious and pleasant riches is not by gaining a lot of money, not by having a great big spacious house, and not by living in the right neighborhood, but by following wisdom. Through wisdom, a happy home, a pleasant home, a godly home, is built. And so throughout the Proverbs, then, we see all these various Proverbs that address the issue of wisdom. And what we're going to be thinking about today is wisdom for married couples, first of all, then wisdom for parents, and then wisdom for children. That's where we're headed. So first of all, wisdom for married couples. We see a lot in the Proverbs. So three things here that I want to tell you from the Proverbs. First of all, this is kind of, I guess, taking a step back for those who aren't married, single, wanting to be married. The Proverbs are pretty clear that you should choose your spouse very carefully. (laughs) Um, The most important decision that you will ever make in your life is the person you choose to marry. Uh, Aside from the decision to receive Christ as Savior, aside from the decision to give yourself to Jesus and live for Him, that, that of course, is the most important thing, uh, you know, vertically. But horizontally, the most important decision you'll, you'll ever make is who you choose to marry. And so here's what it says in the Proverbs. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So you see that this is kind of written from the perspective of, of the man, and that's because during the age in which Proverbs was written, it was men who pursued women. Women didn't pursue men. And so uh, the Proverbs are written from the perspective of the man or the husband when it comes to this question of choosing uh, a spouse. Now, the Proverbs go on, and they describe a, 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 a desirable wife throughout the Proverbs in a lot of different ways, but particularly in chapter 31. And in chapter 31, we have this description of what's called um, the excellent wife, and uh, it's just an amazing description of, of this woman who gets up before dawn, and she takes care of her children, and um, she owns real estate and sells it, and she has a, a small garment business where she's making garments and selling them, and she... She takes care of the poor and she makes her own clothes and she dresses nicely and it just goes on and on and on and I can see how for a woman it just might be overwhelming. It's like, who is this person? This perfect, excellent wife. Well, I'm not going to read that whole chapter to you. You can take a look at that on, on your own time. Chapter 31 of Proverbs, but um, it, it comes to the conclusion like this. So here's the very end of chapter 31, the description of the excellent wife. It says this, charm is deceitful, And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, what we should take from that, that's the very end of the chapter. So all of those things that I just mentioned, plus so many other details that are mentioned in chapter 31 of The Excellent Wife, they're all good, they're all desirable. But by putting this at the end, what the writer is saying is that this is the thing that is most important. This is the thing that rises above them all. A woman who fears the Lord is the one to be praised. So, ladies, if you look at chapter 31 and you're crushed and you're just thinking, I fall so far short of what this woman can do. Here's one thing you can know, that you can face God with an attitude of reverence and awe, and you are a woman to be praised. And that particular attitude toward God is better than beauty and better than charm. It's not to say that beauty and charm are not important in any way, but it's just to say that an attitude of reverence and awe before God is absolutely the most important thing that you can pursue as a single person. So, single people, as you're thinking about a potential spouse, you need to think about making a good choice, but you also need to think about being a good choice. Are you developing character, integrity, and spiritual maturity in such a way that you are a good choice for somebody to choose. Uh, I'm glad that we have already seen on the screen Ephesians 5, directions for husbands, husbands love the wives as Christ loved the church. So just so you know, the Bible has not only given directions to wives, but to husbands also. And so the standard is high in Proverbs 31, the standard is high for husbands in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, as Christ loved pursued the church. Husbands, pursue your wives. As Christ loved the church more than the church ever loved Him, husbands, love your wives more than your wives loved you. Love you. As Jesus denied Himself, sacrificed Himself, entered into pain for the sake of the church, so you, husbands, sacrifice yourselves for your church, excuse me, for your wife. So we see these standards to the wife and to the husband are are high. Um, But but friends, as you're looking and considering a spouse, and maybe some of you are just kind of getting a little bit desperate, and and you're thinking, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life, and you're thinking about settling, don't do it. As you're considering potential spouses, friends, if the person that you're thinking about is not a person who fears the Lord, then that person is not an option for you. Not an option. Choose your spouse carefully. Second thing we learn about married couples is this, speak to each other, speak to each other with affirmation. Um, now, before I go any further, I would just refer you back to last week's sermon So we spent last week talking about the power of the tongue and the way we can use our words wisely. Everything said last Sunday would apply um, specifically and especially to married relationships, so we're not going to review that, but let me show you um, a passage that we didn't talk about last week, so we're still here in chapter 31 of Proverbs, and it says this. After describing this excellent wife, it says, her children... Rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. So, husbands, when's the last time you said that to your wife? The wisdom given to us here in the scriptures is that husbands and wives should speak affirmingly, encouragingly to one another. It's interesting here, isn't it, that the children rise up and call their mother blessed, and uh, this is maybe a little bit of speculation, but I think probably the reason why they do is because they've heard their father call their mother blessed. They're following the lead of dad. Dad is speaking words of affirmation and love and encouragement. The children see that, and they do the same thing. We're not getting a picture here of a husband who likes to put down his wife and insult her and be sarcastic with her and criticize her and oppress her. Nor do we see an example of a man who passively withdraws. You know, maybe he doesn't say anything verbally abusive, but the problem for him is he doesn't say anything at all to his wife. He's withdrawn and detached. Here we have a husband, declaring the praises of his wife. Now, the Proverbs also have something to say to wives in particular and how they use their mouths in the household. Here's chapter 21, verse 19. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Uh, This is reset at least two other times, I think, in the Proverbs. One time it says it's better to live up on the corner of your roof than it is to have a quarrelsome wife, a nagging wife. So, wives, I mean, it's just true. I mean, here's one way. If you want to bring rottenness to the bones of your husband, nagging. That phrase comes from another proverb nagging is a good way to drain the spirit out of your husband and, and to encourage him to be increasingly withdrawn because he doesn't want to talk to you because he's afraid he's going to be nagged. At the same time, friends, I, I don't want you husbands to think, ah, now you know, go home today and you tell your wife, don't you know, remind me of anything that I have to do because the pastor said you're not supposed to nag me. But please, spouses, don't whatever I say in this sermon, don't use these things as weapons against each other. Don't do it. Listen to what God is saying to you. If you're a husband, listen to what God's saying to you. If you're a wife, listen to what God is saying to you. This is not a license to use these things to put your spouse down. But I would ask this to you, husbands. If you feel like you're being nagged by your wife, my question is this. What are you doing in the household to put her in a position where she feels like she has to nag you? Are you telling her you're going to do things and you don't do it? Are you not attentive to her needs? You're just blocking her out? That doesn't excuse her nagging, but you're complicit in the problem. And so I would encourage you to reflect carefully on what you're doing to enable your wife Uh, in this way. So, speak to each other affirmingly. So many other things that could be said about the way we use our words again. Listen to last week's sermon. It's on the web if you want to learn more about that. Third thing about married couples here, protect yourselves sexually. Here's from chapter six. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now, we're going to devote another sermon to sexuality because the Proverbs actually has a lot to say about it. Um, But if I must make comment briefly here, you know, every single person who gets married, every couple who gets together and gets joined in marriage knows that adultery is a possibility, but they all think that's never going to happen to us. Nobody gets into a marriage thinking, yeah, probably one day we'll have adultery. We'll commit adultery. We'll cheat on each other. Yeah, it's probably going to happen. Nobody thinks that. And yet it happens, doesn't it? It happens a lot. In fact, we have an example of that in the Bible. David, a man after God's own heart, his heart goes after Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, and we read about the negative consequences of that. Friends, if it can happen to David, it can happen to you. It can happen. And so what the proverb here is saying is, who can carry fire next to his chest and and not be burned? It's kind of a humorous look. I mean, imagine a, a guy, you know, gathering up a campfire in his arms and walking down the street carrying these flames and then getting surprised that his clothes catch on fire. That's ridiculous. But the comparison is being drawn to the person who's being drawn to his neighbor's wife. And the idea here is that if you're you know, having this kind of special relationship outside your marriage, don't be surprised when you get burned. You know, some examples maybe of carrying fire next to your chest would be you know, just flirting with somebody in the workplace. You think it's just something very innocent. It's no big deal. It's carrying fire next to your chest. Maybe you start to think of some old boyfriend, some old girlfriend you knew in high school. So you go on Facebook and you look them up and you realize you can send them a message. You can just check in and see how they're doing. That's carrying fire next to your chest. Maybe you have a habit of watching sexually explicit movies. Pornography might be a problem. These are all ways that you're opening the door for adultery, and sexual immorality in your marriage. So these three things are given to us uh, in the Proverbs for married couples. <laughs> I just want to tie it up at this point by just saying this. My question for you, married people, and this is the question that I ask myself, and in fact it's a, a regular prayer um, that I offer to God with regard to my marriage, and it's this. I want... Mary to be more godly at the end of her life as a result of being married to me than if she weren't married to me? That's a question that I would set before all of you who are married. Husbands, is your wife gonna be more godly or less godly at the end of her life because of her marriage to you? Wives, is your husband gonna be more godly or less godly at the end of his life as a result of his marriage to you. Wisdom for married couples, okay? Let's move on. Wisdom for parents. Wisdom for parents. Quite a bit in the Proverbs on this particular topic. Probably a good way to start here is to ask you this question. What would you say is the number one goal, parents, the number one goal for yourselves as parents of your children? What's the most important thing? As as you've been given this responsibility to raise your kids, what do you consider to be the number one thing you're trying to accomplish in their lives? Is it to make sure that they get into the best schools? Making sure that they... Get an opportunity to make the most money getting an opportunity to be upwardly mobile and get the best jobs what the proverbs would say is your number one responsibility parents is to make sure that your children believe in jesus trust in him live for him and devote their lives to him that's your responsibility you might fail in a lot of other ways but make that your priority here's what it says in proverbs 22 train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That word for train, it means dedicate. Dedicate your child to the way he should go. Looking at the whole context of scripture, what we know about the way he should go is that he should admit that he's a sinner, he should look to Jesus for salvation, he should give himself fully and completely in obedience to his God. And as parents, that's your responsibility. To teach, challenge, instill that in your kids. We have, uh, as Presbyterians here, a, a certain way of looking at our children. Uh, we call our children covenant children. And what we mean by that is that we believe our children are part of our community. They're part of the covenant community. And so you'll notice that in the book of Proverbs, that whenever children are spoken of, They're spoken of as being part of the community. The the Bible doesn't look at the children of believers as outsiders or as kind of pagan unbelievers. Instead, the basic assumption of the scriptures is that parents, Christian parents, should treat their children like they're Christians. I'm not saying that they are Christians. Nobody becomes a Christian just because they're born into a Christian family. It doesn't happen automatically. I'm talking about the way you treat your kids. You should treat them as if they're Christians because they're born into the covenant community, and the Scriptures constantly refer to children with the assumption that they're part of the group. So that's what we have here. have here. Verse 22, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Now, I don't think that's meant to be a promise. You know, I don't think we can just say that's going to happen every single time. Proverbs give us descriptions of things that are generally true. It says in Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Yeah, generally speaking, that's going to happen, but not in every single case. So I don't know that this is going to happen in every single case, but in most cases it will. In almost all cases it will. It will. If you train your children in godliness, they'll believe. That's the way children are are hardwired. I I found this um, study by a person named Olivera Petrovich, (laughs) um, psychologist from Oxford. And she did this experiment where she got children together and um, she presented various scenarios to them and asked these children... um, where things came from, and and she studied children from Japan and Germany and um, England from different cultures, and so she would set these things and say, "Who, who made this? And the kids would say, well, God did, and it didn't have anything to do with their background. Many of them didn't come from Christian backgrounds at all, but they all just had this kind of instinctive inclination to believe that God was at work, and so this is a quote from her, she said, children are hardwired to believe in God, atheism has to be learned, and so that's that's the assumption here uh, in the Bible, and you might say, well, that's Old Testament stuff, well, we read this earlier in Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, just quoting the Proverbs in the New Testament. So, there should be encouragement to you as parents that you have an advantage on your side with parents born into your household if you begin teaching them as a child. When they're young, get a head start. Don't take this attitude, well, I'm going to wait until they're 18 or 21 and let them make the decision for themselves. You're their parents. Teach them what to believe. I love how... Douglas Wilson says it, he says, we say that to be converted, children need to become more like adults, but Jesus said that to be converted, adults need to become more like children. It's the childlike attitude that is inclined to receive the gospel and live for God, and when children are young, there's a wonderful opportunity to train them in this way and obey Proverbs 22.6. So th- three things here for, for Parents. You might say, how do we do this then? How do I train my child in the way that Proverbs 22, 6 says? Well, one, give them instruction. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. I mean, isn't it interesting here that this verse assumes that mom and dad are teaching in the home, and the assumption also is that mom and dad are teaching the same thing, that mom and dad are united in what they're teaching. That's very important for any parents to be together in what they're presenting to their children. So what do you do? You teach them the gospel. You, you don't assume that they're automatically Christians because they're in your household. You treat them like Christians, but you also call them to repentance And you present to them their sin and their need for a Savior. You tell them what Jesus has done. He died on a cross to forgive sins. He's risen from the dead. He says anybody who trusts in him will be forgiven. And now that you're forgiven, he calls you to obey him. And he offers you a good life in following him and submitting to him. You teach them that. You send them to Sunday school. Parents, you have a responsibility to train your kids. We have Sunday school here every Sunday at 9 a.m. There's an opportunity for you to get some help in training your kids. It's your primary responsibility, but the church is here to help you. Send your kids to Sunday school. Tell them about Jesus. Instruct them. The second thing that we see, (coughs) uh, wisdom for parents, is the example that you set. Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him that there's something powerful about a walk of integrity before your kids. Now, this is not a call for perfection. Nobody's perfect. Parents make mistakes. Parents fail to do what they say they're going to do. Parents are sinners. This isn't a call to perfection. But a child can sniff out a hypocrite. And so, if as parents, you're, you're talking the talk and you're spewing out Bible verses and you're saying all the right things when it comes to what a Christian should say, but, but your child never sees you read your Bible, never sees you pray, never sees you get up and get everybody to go to church, never sees you apologize. You know, that's not setting a very good example Not called to perfection, but there's a call to a consistency between profession and a person's walk. And then the last thing that we see here is discipline. The Proverbs do speak about the responsibility to discipline. Chapter 13, verse 24: Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Yes, the word rod means pain. (laughs) The Scriptures are saying that it is appropriate for parents to inflict some measure of physical pain on their children in order to get their attention and to discipline them. If you don't like that, send your letters of complaint to Solomon. Not to me. Now, there's limitations on this. Um, Not every child needs to be spanked, I think would, would be a, an appropriate application of this. Not every child does. Some children are more sensitive to others, and some children don't need it. So you just give some children a particular look, and, and they know, and, and they're humbled. Okay, not every child needs it. You would, should never spank your child, inflict pain on, in, on your child in public before others in a way to humiliate the child. You should never do that. You should never spank a child for a mere accident, You should never spank a child just because they're annoying you. You spank a child if they are defiantly rebellious against clearly communicated moral directives from you as their parent. And when that goes on for a time, the rod is appropriate. Wisdom for parents. It's from the Proverbs. Instruct them. Set a godly example. Discipline them. Last thing, wisdom for children. Even wisdom for children here uh, in, in the Proverbs. Um, wisdom for children. Three things here, too. Three points and three sub-points under each point. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? <laughs> all right, three things. Wisdom for children. Uh, first of all, This obey your parents. Obey your parents. Here's what it says in chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. I mean, it's the most basic thing in the world, right? Obey your parents. So um, children, those who are here, some of them are in children's church, but the proverb speaks to you, the Bible speaks to you, children, and says that you should obey your parents. And I'll just tell you that when you don't obey your parents, things will go poorly for you. I, I remember a time growing up um, and hanging out with my friends out in the neighborhood, and there was a guy there who was a couple years older than me, and his name was Kurt Klumpers. And I remember telling Kurt, you know, i got to go inside. Mom and Dad told me I had to be in at 8 o'clock or something like that. And Kurt looked at me and said, Bob, you know, you don't always have to do what your parents say you need to do. And it was like, that was the first time, I mean, certainly it wasn't the first time I disobeyed my parents, but it was the first time this idea kind of entered my mind that, hey, yeah, maybe I know better than my parents. Maybe I, it's not really best for me to do what they say. And, and I'll just tell you that that led to a series of events over the next couple of years that are the stupidest things I've ever done, the things I'm most embarrassed about, and... I'd be happy to share those stories with you. I'm not going to do it now from the pulpit. It's too embarrassing. It would take too long. If you want to know, I'll tell you. But it came from that inclination, that idea in my head that, I, you know, I don't need my parents. My parents are dumb. My parents are old-fashioned. I don't have to hear them. I can do what I want. And man, I mean, I, you know, it's testimony to God's grace that I'm not in, in jail or, or dead. So... Children, obey your parents. Second thing, respect your parents. Kind of the same, but a little bit different. Chapter 20, verse 20 says this, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. By, by curse here, I, I, certainly it means you know, literally swearing, but I, I think it means something more than that. It's not just swearing, it's treating your parents with contempt. Looking to your parents like they're the reason for all of your problems. Not giving your parents the respect that they deserve. I I think this proverb is is a call to, to those of you who feel like you haven't been raised well. Stop blaming them, stop blaming your parents. I'm not saying they haven't made mistakes, I'm sure they have. But instead of blaming them, you ought to thank them for doing the best they could to raise you well. Your parents deserve your respect, friends, not because they've proven it to you, not because they've achieved some level of performance that meets your criteria. Your parents deserve your respect because they're your parents. Enough said. Last thing care for your parents. Chapter 23, verse 22, Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. When your parents get old, don't despise them. Don't don't dismiss them. Don't look at them as if they're a bother or an inconvenience, but extend care to them. Wisdom for children. Well, there's more. The Proverbs are just chock full. And we hear all this, and, and again, I just think we're all just feeling like we just feel so woefully short. I mean, I, I know, I, I feel the conviction of, of these proverbs. Husbands who have not cared well for their wives, wives who have not respected their husbands, parents who have made mistakes with their children, children who have been disobedient, disrespectful to their parents. I'm sure all of us are feeling like, you know, there are just so many things I wish I could do over. I just wish I had another opportunity to handle that situation differently. And the fact is, you don't. I mean, those, those, those occasions are gone. And so all we can do, friends, as people who struggle in our family situations is, is look to the gospel, and here's what the gospel tells us, that, that Jesus came into this world as a son, isn't that amazing? That all we see about the family and all that we hear about the centrality of the family, and then wrapped up in the gospel, is the relationship between a father and a son. And Jesus comes into the world fully obedient to his father. In the Proverbs, we have all these instructions obey your father, obey your parents. Well, Jesus is the one who did that. He always obeyed. His earthly father, yeah, but more importantly, he obeyed his heavenly father. He obeyed all the commandments of his heavenly father. Even when his heavenly father said, Son, you must go and die on a cross. You must go and give up your life. You must go and shed blood for bad husbands and bad wives and bad parents and bad children. You must go and redeem them. You must go and pay their penalty. You must go and take upon yourself the wrath that they deserve so that when they look to me, they can know that I will be their heavenly Father now and forever. And you know what? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, remember, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That There's Jesus, the Son being forsaken by his Father. Talk about the ultimate disruption of family relationship. There it was on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Father. And the reason why Jesus did that is so that you who look to faith in Jesus can always know that you have a Father who accepts you and loves you, will never reject you, will never cast you off. A father who assures you, you are part of the family. Always. You not only have a perfect, loving father, but you have brothers and sisters. And that's what we are as a congregation. We are a family. An imperfect family until Jesus comes again. Our biological families are imperfect until Jesus comes again. But what a blessing that our family relationship will one day be fully realized when Jesus comes again and we gather around his throne with all our brothers and sisters. How good it is, how good it is to be part of the family of God. We're going to sing that now. Let's stand, and I'm going to pray for us before we sing. Our Father, we are thankful to you for putting us by grace in the family of God. We praise you. Would you help us, O Lord, as we seek to take the wisdom of the Proverbs. I pray, Father, that husbands and wives and parents and children would learn from this, Lord, and that even as we wrestle with past shames, that we would come rejoicing in your grace and forgiveness and get up and try again to live honorably to you in our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.